0: Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Well, so much for 2022 being a quieter year for us all. Maybe next year. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has made history by becoming the first leader of this country to invoke the Federal Emergencies Act this week as a direct response to ongoing protests and occupations across the country. In the coming days, weeks, and months ahead, we're going to see a lot of analysis of current events, which is why I'm so pleased that this week I'm joined by Karima Saad, who has been on the ground in Ottawa, sharing stories and news from the occupation there since it began on January 28th. Karima has been documenting COVID denialism since 2021, and knew that she had to be on the ground to document the Ottawa occupation in real time. Her coverage, largely shared on Twitter, has resulted in a dedicated following of people who want to know more on everything from the absurd Queen of Canada to the disturbing organizers with a white supremacist agenda to people there just for the party. Thankfully, we always have Anne Brody here to bring us new escapism weekly in the form of new movies and television series. This week, Anne has deets on the new Will Smith series that reimagines his game-changing comedy series, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, in his new series, Bel-Air, and it's worlds away from the superficiality of the original, steeped in realism and intense drama. Plus, she shares details on Apple TV Plus' four-part docuseries, Lincoln's Dilemma, and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel* Season 4 is available now on Prime Video. Commissioner Katie Ward from Ontario's Pay Equity Office is back for Part 2 in their series on a woman's worth, and this month we're taking a closer look at the care economy and how valuing care can support our economic recovery. Language, as we all know, can be powerful, and oftentimes it just takes small tweaks in the verbiage to change minds. That's what June Finley shares from a recent interview she conducted with Stephen Dorsey, author of Black and White, An Intimate Multicultural Perspective on White Advantage and the Paths to Change. By changing the phrase white privilege to white advantage, Stephen received a much stronger buy-in from people formerly opposed to the concept of systemic racism. June joins me to discuss. Finally, April Eileen is here to share why she was inspired to write her new song, Wasted on Your Love, an upbeat dance track inspired by the pop melodies of early Madonna, a splash of Britney, and the synth-based production vibes of Canadian icon The Weeknd. April shares the why behind the song before we end the show with her new release. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region.
1: It's now!
0: My first guest has been in the thick of things in Ottawa since the occupation there on January 28th began. Karima Saad is a Toronto-based lawyer, political cartoonist, and commentator. Her advocacy focuses primarily on housing, cannabis, and criminal law. She is also active on issues relating to politics, access to justice, poverty, racism, and the legal profession. She has been documented COVID denialism since 2021, and she joins me now to share her experience on the ground in Ottawa. Welcome to the show Karima. Thank you so much for having me. I have to ask what compelled you to hop in the car and go to Ottawa?
2: You know this is an extension I think of the work that I have been doing for the past year or so attending rallies documenting them and providing analysis and commentary online. So I mean I feel like I couldn't miss this particular event Um, But more generally, why do I do this? Um, You know, it it started a little bit by fluke and just observing these rallies going past my office and taking pictures from inside my office. Just this is madness. How are these people on the street Um, to actually going downstairs and and figuring out what it was about. And the more that I learned, the more it seemed that this was a matter of public interest that wasn't really being covered by the media and was growing in the dark. And so I felt compelled to take my perspective and put it out there.
0: When the convoy started, I think a lot of people underestimated uh, what was coming towards uh, Ottawa and the capital? Did you have a sense of what was going to happen? You know, what to some degree I
2: underestimated it as well because one thing I've learned is you can't necessarily take at face value um, some of the the statements that are are made. And in fact, that's true because there were not fifty thousand trucks, there were not millions of people, but it was more than I expected. And I didn't think it would last this long and, you know, that I don't know where it goes from here.
0: So did you think when you first arrived, I'll be here a couple of days and now we're (laughs) at the three week mark? How surprised are you that it's gone on this long?
2: I'm pretty shocked. Um, And I think that part of that has to do with the response and reaction from law enforcement, which I didn't really expect to be heavy handed or... Uh, harsh, but the total hands-off, kids' glove approach, uh, I think, has allowed these individuals to really dig in their heels and entrench themselves in Ottawa. So I I think that I I underestimated how ineffective the police response would be.
0: You've been covering this. I've been following faithfully every tweet you put out, every video you put out. Um and you've been approaching this with a sense of humor which is uh great to see. Uh but also you you're you're talking to people on the ground. So I I think a lot of people we know how this started. We know the roots of it. Uh but do you feel everybody down there is sort of uh uh you know coming from this white supremacist uh uh, background or is it a hodgepodge of grievances down on the hill?
2: I think it's fair to say it's a hodgepodge of grievances, but what's interesting about COVID denialism is that this undercurrent of white supremacy is is fairly consistent, and one doesn't necessarily have to go in openly ascribing to those beliefs to find themselves in the same cesspool consuming the same talking points and gradually changing their mindset. So I think that that's part of what's so insidious about this. And it's, you know, the facade of being about mandates or unity or freedom. But really, I think, is a Trojan horse for particular ideologies. And it attracts all manner of people who come for different reasons, but again, are consuming the same talking points. And I think that that is how radicalization happens.
0: I want to talk about that a little bit because we're seeing conflicting images uh, coming out of the, this occupation. We're seeing images of bouncy cows, castles and hot tubs and then Nazi flags and violence actually perpetrated against uh, some people in the city. What What is actually happening on the ground there that you're seeing? Because you are out there every day? And what's the general sense you're getting?
2: It's all of those things, believe it or not. And so that I think is what makes it hard to swallow or fathom or understand because there is this contradiction. But some of that confusion is is deliberate and some of it is PR on the part of organizers or attendees who don't want to be characterized in a negative light. Um so let's host a pancake breakfast because that's going to make us look better but you know we'll then go on stage and talk about this is the hill we die on. So it, it, I think all of it is is true and what I tried to do is provide kind of the broadest perspective that I can um to to showcase people picking up trash and making each other breakfast and having food donations um but at the same time you know, using violent rhetoric, having symbols or signs that are Holocaust denying or reductionist, um, and, and and it's all part and parcel of of what's in here.
0: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Karima Sad, who has been on the ground in Ottawa uh, since the beginning of the occupation on January twenty eighth. I bet she's very very cold. Uh, we'll be right
3: back.
1: <laughs>
4: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region.
0: We are back with Karima Saad, who has been covering the Ottawa occupation now since January 28th. Uh, it should be noted that we are pre-recording this segment. So a lot can happen between uh, Tuesday and Saturday. So I have no idea where this is going to end up. But let's talk about the Emergencies Act that just came in. Uh, what is the reaction you're seeing amongst uh, the people who are still downtown in Ottawa?
2: On the ground, there seems to be very little reaction at all. Uh, which is interesting and I, I think could either be attributed to people not reading the news or not fully understanding the implications of what this means or thinking that this makes their cause more righteous and they are, in fact, martyrs being oppressed by the government. So nothing has changed to my sort of observation on the ground. There's maybe a few trucks that have left. Um But listening to the organizers speak, I I think that they have a clearer sense that this changes the landscape
0: quite a bit. Do you feel that this is going to move them out or cement them in more and that we're going to have to take more drastic measures to move who remains down there out? I think if the
2: consequences are clearly communicated, I, I think that. The powers are so sweeping and, you know, just by way of example, potentially permanently losing access to a bank account in the 21st century is is nothing to sneeze at. That is an extremely drastic measure. Uh, I think that if that's communicated properly to people, if they do, in fact, rely on these trucks for their livelihood and, and they're not independently wealthy, then there's going to be very little option but to leave. And, you know, if if they don't, then I, 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 I'm not sure where it goes from there because this is, you know, as big a stick, I think, as can be persuasive without actually I- engaging in physical violence.
0: Now, you're also a lawyer. So what are your thoughts on this act being brought in? Do you feel it's overreach? I, I've read some competing
2: analyses and you know what we can say is that this is the first time it's been invoked in its 34 year history um so the threshold for invoking it is quite high i think looking at the broader context of what's been happening at borders um you know and obviously this occupation in ottawa that that has it moved um i i see where it's defensible to have used this tool. And there are checks and balances to the extent that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his cabinet will have to get approval from MPs and senators within the next week. But I I think it never should have gotten to this point. Um, You know, and that's maybe easy to say from my sort of armchair observations. Um, But uh, the the, the federal government has had to step in, I think, because of a lack of efficacy on the part of the province and the municipality. So I, I think that there are two levels of government that dropped the ball here. And now it's Trudeau, who, you know, ironically is the subject of ire here with all of these anti Trudeau flags and signs and effigies and so on, um, who is having to take this decisive step.
0: I mean, there's a lot there. I mean, there's going to be a lot of uh, analysis of this entire thing um, moving forward for years to come, no doubt. Uh, But, you know, just from your sort of on the ground, seeing it all happen in real time, where does the failure really lie here? Does it is it the city? Is it provincial, federal combination? What do you think should have happened uh, way, way sooner than what we're seeing right now?
2: I think that there was a lot of tossing the hot potato between levels of jurisdiction. Um, But I, I also believe that the trucks landing on Wellington Street in front of Parliament in the first place shouldn't have been allowed to happen. And the geography of Ottawa is such that those streets could have been blocked. Access could have been denied at sort of key entry points. I also think that this has gone on longer than it should, in part because people feel emboldened by police, whether that's due to selfies being taken, messages that are being sort of shared. Obviously, it's not the entirety of the police force, but you know what they say about one bad apple. Um, And, you know, supplies haven't been cut off despite the announcement that fuel... Would no longer be able to get to Wellington Street. I, I still see jerry cans being carted around in wagons. So whether that's you know the force is overwhelmed and and this just got too much for them to handle, you know where has the province been uh, absent? You know we know Doug Ford was cottaging while part of this was going on. So I I think that it is you know. It's a team failure, if we can put it that way.
0: All right, Karima, um, I'm going to let you go because I know you have more important coverage to do. I hope you do get to go home soon, though. Um, uh, If people are not following you uh, and keeping up with everything you're you're sharing, where can they find you?
2: I am most active on Twitter. So my handle is Karima Rules, C-A-R-Y-M-A-R-U-L-E-S.
0: You can also find me on Instagram at Karima Saad. Okay, thank you so much for joining me today, Karima. Uh, I hope to have you back on the show again soon uh, when you're safe and warm in your own place. <laughs> thank you so much. It was a pleasure. It's not to
1: deny
0: Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Ann Brody. And this week we have a twist on what's an old classic. And I hate even saying old classic because this is literally
5: from my day. <laughs> <laughs> right. I know. <laughs> well, The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. I mean, that was a brown break- breaking series. It was about a black kid from, played by Will Smith, brought from his dangerous home to live with his wealthy family in L.A. And it was a comedy. And, uh, well, he's reimagined it all together in Bel Air and on Stack TV Showcase and the Global TV app. So what happens is his character, Will Smith, is in a lot of trouble. He's an academic and a basketball star at school in Philadelphia, West Philly, bad neighborhood. And um, he becomes the object of a death threat so he his mother sends him out west to live with his very wealthy aunts and uncle aunt and uncle, so off he goes. he's completely blown away by what he sees, and he he's put in a situation where he really doesn't know how to act he he's He's trying to be really relaxed and informal and friendly, but it just doesn't work so there's a certain classism about it about being with his own family um and a lot of uh Really serious stuff comes up. There's a, a white guy who goes after him because he's jealous of all his uh, accomplishments as a new kid. His cousin Carlton is a mean son of a gun and just uh, destroys him at every turn. Um, it's really interesting. It's it's pretty good. It's certainly not what the fans of the old show want uh, might expect. Right, and that's what struck me watching the trailer that you sent over was
0: the humor and lightness that was there in the series originally is gone the characters are reimagined it's almost like um this is what will smith wished could have been aired all those years ago um but instead probably because of the time it had to be funny and light
5: yeah well we're in angrier times now you know, and it's 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 sad, but it's he does a great job. I'm I got to say, you know, in producing this, he and his wife Jada Pinkett, they they're producing. He's not in it, but there's some great faces, including Jimmy Akingbola, who's a terrific British actor playing Jeffrey. So yeah, so check it out. Check out uh, the series. Speaking of reimagined, um, there's a closer look at Abraham Lincoln. Yes, the uh, revered president who. Created or who caused emancipation in slavery back in the 1860s. Well, that wasn't his goal. His goal was to unite the North and South following all these tremendous rifts based on slavery. Slavery made the South wealthy, um, it was entirely dependent on it. The North tolerated slavery, and he actually said, I'm not here to end slavery. I just want to keep our country together under democracy. So uh, as time went on and it, and, and he won the election and he, he moved forward, he then crystallized his ideas with the help of, um, uh, the black philosopher Frederick Douglass back there, who's also a filmmaker and a writer and everything. And he crystallized his view to, to actually desire the freedom for the slaves. So it's a really interesting four parter on Apple TV called Lincoln's Dilemma. Because it certainly was. So we'll learn a lot of watching this. All right, let's talk about The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. I
0: watched that season one, loved it, never kept going with it. Um, and
5: I'm wondering, is it worth picking it up again? If you if you loved the first series and it just sounds like you didn't finish it, um, it's fun. It's the same. It's exactly the same. things, And they're trying to be a bit spicier. Like she winds up working in a strip club. And um, as you know, Susie, her agent, burned down her mother's house in order to get the insurance to pay their bills. Uh, Mrs. Maisel and her own. And at one point, she's so angry with the world. She gets out of the cab in the middle of the night, stops traffic, takes her clothes off and has a rant. (laughs) So they're really trying, if you know what I mean. Still, it's amusing and funny. And those clothes, my God. Don loper-esque stuff and there's a dorothy draper chest look that up great designer from the 40s and 50s um the art direction is just totally drool worthy and if you like the first season carry on with this one just expect greater shocks all right well they always have to ramp it up
0: somehow when you're four seasons in they have to spice it up a little so we have time for one more yeah. what
5: do you suggest okay i'm gonna i'm gonna go with the unabomber Well, that's so happy. What a movie. (laughs) Yeah, it's called uh, Ted K and it's on TVOD and it's unbelievable. It's about Ted Kaczynski, the mathematician, Harvard educated guy, IQ 167. Um, He turned his back on society and moved off the grid up into the mountains, the Rocky Mountains. And he went after violently with the bombs and every other thing against the corporations who were stripping down the trees and ruining the environment. That was one thing. But he was also against the rise of tech. So he would send bombs across the country. He wound up over 20 years killing three people and injuring like 23. And it took them a long time to find him in his little cabin. Funny story. There's a scene in it where you don't know what's actually happening. He's woken up sleeping in his trailer and he's bumping and it's, it's moving. You think, oh, an earthquake. But then I remember, and it, no context, then I remember back in the day when they arrested him and he was in prison, there was a huge fuss made. All the news cameras followed the cabin driving from his home to the forensics lab down the highway in California. I mean, it's amazing. It is a real work of art, the way the film is made. And where can people find that, Ian? At TVOD. So, TVOD. transactional video Excellent. on demand. Yeah. Yeah. Well worth it. All right. So, you've got
0: all of these and more, as usual, on whatshe Uh And you will be back next week with some new entertainment for us. And as always, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Candace. Let
1: me take a try.
4: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059The Region.
1: Jumping, showering, the blood starts pumping. Out on the streets, the traffic starts topping.
0: With a mission to close the gender wage gap in Ontario, the Pay Equity Office works to make the world a more equitable place for women to work, live, and thrive. Ontario's Pay Equity Office and What She Said have partnered for a three-part series on a woman's worth. Last month, Katie Ward joined me to discuss career clustering. You can find that over on whatshesaidtalk.com to listen to the interview and read a more in-depth article on what it is and how women can get around it. Today, Commissioner Katie Ward is joining me to discuss the care economy and how valuing care can support economic recovery. Welcome back to the show, Katie. Thank you for having me. I think this is such a huge topic and in recent years has sort of exploded in interest as people have grabbed onto the language of the care economy and what it means and women are really seeing that it has been long been undervalued. So maybe you can elaborate from here for us. Well,
6: you mentioned last one to talk about care work or or clustering of women, and women are often clustered in paid care work. Then there's also this undervaluation of um, paid care work that's just not in consideration. So, you know, there's been long standing gender norms and gender gaps around who does the caregiving. um, Right. And I think COVID laid bare the negative consequences of having these sort of very gender divides of of care work. So, you know, women around the world spend on average more than twice as much time on unpaid care and domestic work than men. This is housework, child care work, elder care. So that's what I talk about when I talk about care work, because last week we talked about um, women being clustered in care and the undervaluation in the labor market of care. But I want to talk about the unpaid care work women do and how that's affected or related to the gender wage gap. So what's the value of that work? And what, it, what does it mean? So I'll put some numbers to that in terms of dollar value um, in a minute. But I think it's important to think about it in terms of GDP. This is a, one way we measure a country's wealth. And unpaid care and domestic work is valued depending on the country to be between 10 and 39 percent of gross domestic products. So that can be contributed um, in some economies unpaid care contributes more than manufacturing commerce or transportation so as much of as half the world's work is unpaid and most of it's done by women which is problematic we'll talk about the labor force later and why that impacts the gender wage gap but you know from a dollar sense point of view how much is that you know half the world's unpaid work actually worth in dollars well there's an estimate um Based on a survey done by the International Labor Organization, they looked at 64 different countries and it shows that, listen to this, 16.4 billion hours are spent in unpaid care work every day. So this is equivalent to 2 billion people working eight hours per day with no remuneration. So if that care work was actually valued and paid on, say, an hourly minimum wage, The International Labor Organization estimates that it would be around $11 U.S. So this matters to the pay equity office and it matters to women because the imbalance is placed on, on women and women's economic opportunities. And it's also costly to society because it leads to lower productivity and foregone economic growth. So thinking about how we allocate unpaid fair work to benefit women, but also to benefit you know, society, because here's the reality. Um, The economy is propped up by unpaid care work, right? It's the work that enables households to function. So adults in the household can participate in the labor force, which in turn produce salaries, which are invested, which are taxed, which goes back into public spending. So, You know, it's the work that women primarily do that subsidizes, say, public care services when they're not actually available, like elder care or child care, um, other forms of domestic care. So unpaid care makes a substantial contribution to a country's economies, but it's mostly invisible and unrecognized and unaccounted for decision making. But, you know, more importantly, uh, it's unpaid.
0: Yeah. And we're not magically going to start producing more money to, you know, pay mothers at home or things like that. that. That's not going to change things. But imagine the effect this would have on the economy if, you know, women largely just walked off the job of their unpaid jobs, just you know, went on strike. It would cripple the economy. It would, and that's I think that's part of
6: the discussion. Organizations like the International Labor Organization and OECD and the large multinational or multilateral organizations are having about the value of, of women's work to the economy that's unrecognized, right? Because we just rely on these things happening unset. And, and, you know, to be fair, all male partners in a partnership also contribute, I'm sure to unpaid labor. You know, there is work in running a home. Let's you know, be realistic. It's just the disproportionate impact um, on women and that we're not accounting for it or that we're not recognizing it. You know, it's, it's really interesting. It's worth noting that Norway, for a brief period of time, a couple of years following World War II, they actually counted the work of women in the home as part of their GDP. And uh, they were forced to give up counting this measure because at, they wanted to comply with international labor standards and international um, labor reporting and GDP reporting, and nobody else was, was accounting for it at the time. I think it's time to have a conversation about bringing back women's unpaid work and men's for that matter, all unpaid work into the uh, economic metrics of a country. So we understand just what it's worth because aside from the inequality of it, it's, this is the main, one of the main barriers of women's participation in the labor market. So they're, wrapped up in a lot of unpaid care um, for family or domestic issues, and they're not able to come in and they're more likely to work part time because of care responsibilities. Therefore, they're making less, they have less financial security, and this widens the gender pay gap.
0: It would be unlike you to show up here without solutions. So I feel like you might have some suggestions for us.
6: Well, for sure. You know, a couple of things. One, we this is this is working. We're talking about it. One thing that's been a silver lining, I've said this before in the pandemic, is it's brought women's economic um, injustices to the forefront and policymakers are paying attention. So we're starting to see legislation like the right to disconnect and the right to disconnect legislation, I think, impacts women in a big way. Because there's women who, you know, during the pandemic, we talk about a she session. Um, other organizations are starting to actually call it a mom session because it was mostly working mothers, working mothers of school-age children who felt the impact. And so these working mothers of school-age children, when daycares and school shut down, had a you know disproportionate amount of care work at home. Um, this created massive challenges in the labor, in their jobs, right? Because they were saying to employers, look, I have my kids from now till eight till three or whatever the hours are. Um, so they're working, you know, really unhealthy work-life balance. So legislation like the right to disconnect is going to help women, I think, um, stand up for their rights in the workplace and work with employers to accommodate the new kind of family reality for women because it's a huge challenge um, we're, we're all facing right now. We're all still, you know, two years in, we're still trying to figure out what is the balance. So, legislation helps. Employers have a big role to play in this in terms of connecting with the women uh, on their team to figure out what are the challenges. Can you do flex hours? Can you make um, different timing work for different people within? within the workforce
0: and and i would say as well that maybe you know some businesses need to really explore if the return to office is is mandatory i mean if you think about the time lost in commuting every day when the job can be done from home just as effective and i think i think employees have largely proved that through this pandemic that they will still work can still be productive right
6: It's true. And this is now, you know, a great debate because of this um, great resignation, which we're hearing a lot about in the news or the great reset in terms of the workforce. And so this is a a true story. I mean, you know, prior to the pandemic, women, you know, were significantly they were made about 39 percent of the labor force and that dropped significantly. So now women are saying, look, we want to come back and there's value and employers see the value. But the employers need to come to the table, and be flexible. And I think this work from home or the location independent work is one way to substantially help women who, who, you know, you rightly said it. the commute is killer for a lot of people over an hour or close to an hour for a lot of people. And that's just so much time away now when care is inconsistent in terms of daycare or schooling is inconsistent. So allowing that, I think, is going to make a big difference uh, for mothers.
0: All right. Katie, thank you so much for joining me. As always, you're a wealth of information. Uh, You're going to be back next month. But uh, for now, uh, people can find you and more about pay equity at pay equity office where? Uh
6: payequity.ca. And I want to also. Uh, let people know they can go to levelthepayingfield.ca if they're interested in more economic information. Uh, We ran a series on women, work, money, and economics, and they can find out information about, you know, the hard
0: economic facts in our first episode. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Katie. Thank you. My next guest is a social media manager and consultant in Toronto, in addition to being a freelance journalist. June Finley aims to create positive change, inform, teach, learn, and start a discussion that helps us connect with one another. She recently had the opportunity to interview Stephen Dorsey, author of Black and White, an intimate multicultural perspective on white advantage and the paths to change, for an article that is currently in Canadian business that discusses what Stephen has coined as white advantage. June joins me now to discuss. Welcome back to the show, June.
3: Hi, Candace. Thanks for having me. Always good to be back and talk with you.
0: So I, I found this very interesting because he he you, at the beginning of the article you talk about how people took adf- ad- offense to white privilege and by changing it to white advantage they were more receptive to the ideas being discussed isn't that interesting how language can affect that so much
3: yes absolutely and steven is a marketer first so that's how we actually connected And got through a lot of the ideas because we understood each other that way as both black people working in the marketing world. And we're both very conscious as to how, you know, semantics are a real thing, especially when it comes to marketing. And because our job is to understand how people feel, think and do. And so I found it interesting that when he just switched it a little bit, because even as a copywriter, but from day to day, I know that how even just the slightest tweak can really affect people. And so he he was able to do that when he was starting to talk with people after um, the Joyce Floyd murder and the protests that are happening afterwards and his white friends and colleagues were coming to him and he was like, he was talking about white advantage, not white advantage, white privilege, defund the police, all the other, uh, I guess, social justice warrior terms that are commonplace and have been around for a while, for a little while anyway, but have now entered the public mainstream of, of discussion, right? But for a lot of people... It turns them off in terms of like, because you know, people just want to learn something very quickly or understand something very quickly, where it's like it's very binary. But things like this are non, are not binary. It is not black and white. There's a lot of gray areas, especially when it comes to race. And so sometimes that's why it's important that sometimes when you coin a term, it's at it does its best to at least explain the situation, you know, in, in an elevator pitch in 30 seconds or less or something like that. So with Steven, he was finding that. So the term white privilege was not great because even if people were not coming from privilege, like say they're coming from lower middle class or lower class, they were like, well, white privilege just means I'm rich and I'm not rich. And so he found that by saying white advantage, every white person has advantage. The point of the whole term is that the reason that they seem to be getting ahead and do get ahead of everyone else that isn't white is because They're, they are the byproduct of a system that is built for and by white people. And so as a white person, no matter what, what part of the country you're from, you know, what, what socioeconomic status, the fact that you are white puts you above everyone else. And that's the point he tried to get across. And that's where he found white advantage got that point across better than white privilege. And so did he
0: find that people were more receptive to listen to the messaging around diversity, equity, inclusion when you talk about white advantage as opposed to white privilege?
3: Yes. So at the very least, if they didn't like, for him, he was saying a lot of people were at least starting to be like, oh, let me start doing the work. Because he talks about this in his book where even on his own Um, growing up in the 70s and 80s across Canada as a biracial man, he had some unlearnings to do himself because he was raised by a white family. Um, And so he kind of likens that to how people in general, especially white folks, have to really uh, do the unlearning, and white advantage is the gateway to all of that. It was a really great
0: article that you wrote, and it got me thinking about defund the police because you know uh, people get their back about that expression without really understanding the messaging behind it uh, so maybe it's just a question of you know changing the the mess the the wording to make it more palatable to people to take the time to listen to it as opposed to getting their back about those two words, uh, you know, or so sort of those three words together. Yeah,
3: absolutely. And there's a great example of this that a friend of mine who is white, but who I've known since I was 14 years old. So we're very close friends and we've known each other for a very long time. She told me about, she read the article and she ended up talking to her mother about it. Both of her parents, we've have we've joked about this in the past, but she's always joked that her parents are very quote unquote old school. Like we grew up in Scarborough together. We're used to being around multicultural folks all the time at the end of the day, white folks are still going to do what they're going to do sometimes. They're just, you know, insulate themselves with other white folks. But her mom and dad have actually been open to that discussion since the article because she texted me over the weekend and said, I had a conversation with my mother who was a manager at a large corporation for many, many years. And she's talking about the difference between white privilege and uh, white advantage. And I know them personally, so I know that they are not, they were, you know, firmly middle class. And so they, they, wouldn't, they didn't come for money. And so that was their main um, adverse reaction to the white, whole white privilege thing, because my friend was just like, oh, yeah, of course, that's a whole thing that's real. But to her, for her to explain that to her parents, who are um, quote-unquote baby boomers, you know, having the term white advantage to really explain that they have, an, they have an advantage over everyone else because of who they are and what the system is built, who the system is built for, her mother was very much more receptive to it. And so they had a good conversation, and she's able to read a little more about it. And so if that's what this whole article and really the book starts that's really what that's that's really all this is about
0: absolutely getting people to listen june uh, i think it's a great article so where can people find it where can people connect with you and of course where can they find steven's book
3: yeah, so Stephen's book, I believe, is from Nimbus Publishing. Um, they're actually a great follow on Twitter, as is Stephen. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I believe the book is also available at Indigo because he was posting something about it being at Indigo the other day. Um, as for me, you can find me on Twitter at Miss Lady Niobe. You can find me on LinkedIn at, this, um, at June Findlay, of course. Uh, but Twitter is the best place to find me if you want to talk about this. So
0: hit me up. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today, June. Thank you, Candace. Thank you.
4: More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region.
0: In the throes of infatuation, feeling emotionally intoxicated on love, April Eileen was inspired to write her new song, Wasted on Your Love, an upbeat dance track inspired by the pop melodies of early Madonna, a splash of Britney, and the synth bass production vibes of Canadian icon The Weeknd. She joins me now to share a little behind the music before we play the song in its entirety for you. Welcome to the show, April. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what was your inspiration for Wasted on Your Love?
7: Oh, it was certainly quite the chemistry of a beautiful, beautiful romantic relationship that uh, I hope everybody gets to feel, you know, the, the highs of um, and beauty of, of passion that just fills you on every level, mental, emotional, spiritual, physical. So I'm excited about this song.
0: And have you been writing your own music now Uh, For forever, or is this something you're just starting out? Tell me about your your journey in music a little bit.
7: Well, it's interesting. I played piano since I was five, and then I actually went to Ukraine at 16 for piano master classes and thought I might be a concert pianist, and then realized that uh, maybe I didn't have the five to six hours a day of um, practice in me. So I ended up going to university and working in marketing for a little while. And then it was the film industry that got me back into music. And so about seven or eight years ago, I wrote a soundtrack for a movie called Butterflies with um, a Canadian Emmy Award winning writer director who's in LA right now. And that really got me into, you know, writing my own music. I went down to Savannah, Georgia, worked on my first album and and this is the first single from the, the second one. So I'm really excited to, uh, to have more music.
0: <laughs> I was going to say, so what's next for you?
7: Uh, so we've got this song, Wasted on Your Love. And then I've got uh, a couple more singles that all release. And then in the summer comes the full album. I've got some touring um, through Ontario and possibly out west in the summer. And I'm already, you know, basically have written a third album. So I'll be working on getting those songs recorded and and ready for 2023. Well,
0: I'm very grateful to have you uh, on the show today. I feel like we're getting you just as you're on the cusp of something huge. So we're getting you sort of before everybody knew who you were. Uh, So let's play your song, uh, Wasted on Your Love for Everybody. And I'm looking forward to having you back again in the future, April.
7: Oh, Candice, I'd love to come back. So thank you for supporting women and artistry and and, uh, Canadians. And I'm excited. I hope your listeners love the new song.
0: All right. And where can people find you on social media, April, just before we play the song?
7: Oh, the best! Uh, it's April Aileen, but it's A P R Y L L Aileen with an A I L E E N. Um, so, AprilAileen dot com, and then on Instagram, TikTok, Spotify, you know, YouTube, everything's basically April Aileen. So. As long as they get that Y and the double L in there, they're good to go. (laughs) All
0: right, here we go. We're closing out this week's show then with April Aileen, Wasted On Your
1: Love. I should have known better, but still I had it Straight to the door, let you in Blame it on the weather or whatever So it begins I said I wouldn't do this do this again, but now I'm caving in, so put a little liquid on my lips, the taste of your kiss, cause I, 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 I can't resist, oh, I'ma on your love. In. So put a little liquid on my lips The taste of your kiss Cause I, 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 can't resist So put a little liquid on my lips The taste of your kiss Cause I, 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 I can't resist So oh, I'm wasted on
0: What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region.
4: Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059Theregion.com.
1: It is your favorite girl. That's right, it's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating, and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle.